Chapter Fifteen of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Fifteen, Tahitian Tales. The evening was very warm and still. The sea rumbled faintly on the reef half a mile offshore. And behind us, above the vague heights of the interior, a full moon was rising. The palms were asleep after their daily tussle with the trades, fronds drooping and motionless in silhouette against the sky. We had spread mats on the grass close to the beach. Tanautu lay beside me, chin propped in her hands. She had been bathing, and her dark hair, still damp, hung in a cloud about her face. Her grandmother, Arima, the woman of Mopti, sat facing us, cross-legged in the position of her people. Now and then a fish leaped into the lagoon. Once far down on the beach a ripe nut thudded to the earth. "'If you two like,' said old Arima, "'I will tell you the story of my ancestor, the Lizard Woman.' The girl smiled and raised her head, in the little gesture which corresponds to our nod. "'That is a good tale,' she declared, and true, for I am named after that lizard woman who died so many years ago." The woman of Mapiti lit a match to a dry leaf of black tobacco over the flame. When she had twisted it in a strip of panduas and inhaled deeply of the smoke, she spoke once more. Her voice was flexible and soft, with a sweet huskiness, an instrument to render the music of the old island tongue. Its cadences measured and rapid, falling or rising with the ebb and flow of the tide. In the old days, Aramina began, so long ago that his name is now forgotten, there was a king of Papanu, a just man successful in war and beloved by his people. His wife was a daughter of Bora Bora the most beautiful woman of that island. She was the delight of his heart, and they had many children. When she fell ill and died, a great sadness came over the king. He could do nothing but brood over his loneliness. In his dreams he saw the face of his wife. Life was hateful to him. Even his children, shouting and playing about the house, grew hateful in his eyes. A day came at last, when he could endure the sight of them no longer and a plan to be rid of them took form in his mind. There had been a storm, and he knew that the waves would be running high at a place where there was a break in the reef. Come, he said to the woman of his household, bring my children to swim. It will hearten me to see them sporting in the surf. But when they came to that beach and the woman saw the great waves thundering in through the pass, they were afraid for even a strong swimmer could not live in such a sea. Then the king, whose hope was that his children might drown, bade them forget their fears. One after another the young boys and girls went into the sea and were swept out by the undertow, fearless and shouting. The waves broke over them, and at times they disappeared. The women began to cover their faces, for they thought, These pretty children so dear to us are as good as dead. Then the watchers saw a strange thing, a true thing, told by my grandfather, who had learned it from the lips of his ancestors. Beyond the breaking of the surf the children began to sport in the water, diving and leaping higher and higher into the air.
Their skins grew black and glistened in the sunlight. Their arms turned to fins, and their feet became like the tails of fish. The gods of those days had taken pity on their innocence, and had made them the first dolphins, the playful children of the sea. And the king was glad, for he saw his children would not die, and he knew that they could no longer come to his house to bring back bitter memories. As the years went on, the daughters of many chiefs were brought to the king, but no woman found favor in his eyes. His heart was always heavy, and no man saw him laugh. Sometimes he walked alone in the mountains, where men do not go even today. For he feared nothing, neither the raving spirits of the dead, nor the lizard people, who in those days lived in the interior of the island. Fifty generations of men have lived and died since our ancestors came to this island. They found the lizard people already in possession of the land. Ta'a-tamu, they called them, half-human, half-lizard, able to climb among the cliffs where no man could follow. The human warriors were more powerful in battle, and as time went on, the lizard folk were driven into the fastness of the mountains. Now the last of them is dead, but if you doubt that they once lived, go into the hills, and you will see the remains of their plantain gardens high above cliffs no human creature could scale. My own people are traveling the same path. Soon the last of us will also be dead, and the white man will glance at the scattered stones of our marias to make sure that once upon a time we lived. But I was telling you of the king. One day, as he wandered alone in the mountains, a lizard woman was lying in the fern of the trail, the head woman of her people, skilled in magic and able to read the future. The king was a tall man, very strong and handsome. As he passed without looking down, she seized his foot gently. At that he looked down, and his heart swelled with love of her. He dwelt with her in the mountains, and when at last he came down to the sea, his people had given him up for dead. In due time a son was born to the lizard woman, a strong and beautiful boy, the image of the king, his father. She reared him alone in the mountains, and grew to love him better than her life. But when she looked into the future, her tears fell. When the child was twelve years old, she led him to the mouth of her valley and talked long with him, telling him what he was to do before she turned away and went back to her own place, weeping. Taking thought of her words, the boy went alone to the village of the king. His dress was the skin of lizards. When he came to that place, he said to those about, Take me to the king, my father. But when they repeated his words, the king said, It is false. I have no wife and no child. Then the child sent back word, asking the king if he had forgotten walking one day in the mountains many years before. With that, the king remembered his love for the lizard woman and bade his men bring the boy to him. And when he saw the strong, fearless child, and heard his people exclaim at the beauty of the boy, the wondrous likeness to himself, his heart softened, and he said, This is indeed my son. The years passed, and the heart of the lizard woman, sad and alone in the mountains, grew ever more hungry for her son, until at length her life became intolerable without sight of him. She stole down from the hills by night and went softly about the village, weeping and lamenting, because her son was not to be seen. The people trembled at sight of her in the moonlight, and at the sound of her weeping, and the king feared her, for he knew that she was powerful in magic, and thought that she had come to take her son away. 
In his fear he took canoe with the young man, and they went down the wind to Tehira, the low island, where he thought to be safe from her. But the lizard woman, by her magic, knew where they had gone. She looked into the future and saw only sadness and death for herself. What must be cannot be avoided. She leapt into the sea and swam first to Britannia, where she had lands and where the bones of her ancestors lay in the Marie. When she came to that shore, she knew that her death was near and that she would die by the hand of her own son. Close by the beach she stopped to weep, and the place of her weeping is still called Dainu Edi, the little falling of tears. Further on her path she stopped again to weep still more bitterly, and to this day the name of that place is Tainu Rei, the great falling of tears. When she had been to her Mori, she plunged again into the ocean and swam to Tentarua. In all the islands there was no swimmer like her. Because of his mother, her son was named Amona, swimmer in the sea. The king and the king's son saw Tinihatu coming far off, for Tinihatu was the name of that lizard woman, and they felt such fear that they climbed to the top of a tall palm. Then, knowing the manner of her death, she came out of the water, weeping all the while, and began to climb the palm tree. The two men trembled with fear of her. They threw down coconuts, hoping to strike her so that she would fall to the earth. But though she was bruised and her eyes blinded with tears, she climbed on until she was just beneath them, clinging to the trunk where the first fronds began to branch. She stopped to rest for a moment and as she clung to the palm, allowing her body to relax, her son hurled a heavy nut which struck her on the breast. She made no outcry, but her hands let go their hold, and she fell far down to the earth. But the men still trembled, and were afraid to come down out of the tree, for she struck in a swampy place and was long in dying. All afternoon she lay there, weeping and lamenting, until at sunset the spirit left her body. When she was dead, they took her to Retaritaria, and buried her in her moray. After that, the two men returned to Papanu, and when the king died, the son of the lizard woman reigned long in his stead. These are true words, for the blood of swimmer in the sea, born of the lizard woman, flows in my veins. Old Ariima ceased to speak. From the coconut shell at her side she took a lump of black native tobacco and began to tear off a leaf for a fresh cigarette. Her granddaughter turned on one side, head resting on a folded forearm, and looked at me. Aye, these are true words, she said, for is my name not the same as that of the lizard woman? During a thousand years, perhaps more, my Tikito Mai, since the beginning, the women of our family have been called Tehetetu. You yourself, though we call you Tari, have a real name among us, Amona, after her son. These names belong to us. No other family does well to use them. The flare of a match illuminated for an instant the wrinkled and aquiline face of Arima. As she tossed the glowing stick aside, the moonlit smoothed away the lines. I was aware only of her black eyes wonderfully alive and young. Tell him of Poya, she suggested, and the dead ones in robes of flame. Aye, 
said the girl. That is a strange tale, and it came about because of a name. She sat up, shaking her black hair over her shoulders. The woman who saw these things, she went on, was another of our ancestors. She was called Poia, a name her grandfather had given. She lived in Tainu Idi, in Batia, where Tainu too first stopped to weep. One day in mid-afternoon, Poia was sitting in the house beside her mother, busy with weaving of a mat. All at once a darkness closed in before her eyes, and she felt the spirit struggling to leap from her body. It was like the pangs of death, but at last her spirit was free, and with its eyes she saw her body lying as if in sleep, and perceived that there were strangers in the house, two women and a man. The women were very lovely, with flowers in their hair and robes of scarlet, which seemed to flicker like fire. They were Viaharatuna and Viaharatuna ancestors dead many years before, who loved Paya dearly. The man was likewise dressed in flaming scarlet, and he wore a tall headdress of red feathers. He was Tanatua, another of Puya's ancestors. The three had come from the Maori to seek Puya, and they spoke to her kindly, saying, Come with us, daughter. And though she felt shame when she looked down at her dull dress and disordered hair, she followed where they led. They took her to a Maori of Tuinui Rahi, and where Poyua saw a huge woman waiting for them. The right side of that woman was white, and the left side black. When she saw them coming, she fell on her knees and began to weep for joy. It is you, Poya, she cried. Then welcome. As Poya stood there, marveling, the stone of the Maori opened before her like the door of a great house, and Viahinatua and Viahinatuna said to her, Go in. The door gave on a chamber of stone. The floor was of stone, and the ceiling and walls. They passed through another door into a second empty room of stone, and thence into a third, and there Poia chanced to look down at herself. She had become lovely as the others. Her hair was dressed with flowers and her robe was scarlet, seeming to flicker like fire. When she was looking at herself, no longer ashamed, the two women said to her, You must stay here, for you belong to us. We are angry with your grandfather because he called you Poia. That is not all of your name. Your true name is Tetanuni Poia Terimaheta. That name belongs to us, and you must have it, for you are our descendant, and we love you. She did not know that this was her name. She thought it was only Poia. In spite of their kindness, she was frightened and told them that she wished to go home. They took her to the door of her house and left her there, and she found herself lying with the half-woven mat in her fingers. Her mother, who was sitting beside her, only said, But Poia, in fear and wonder at what she had seen, said nothing to her mother, not even when the two went to bathe. The next day in mid-afternoon Poia felt the darkness close in before her eyes, the pangs of death as her spirit struggled and at last escaped from the body but this time she found herself gloriously clothed and beautiful at once. All went as before until they came to the third chamber of the Moray. There were leaves spread on the floor of that place, as if for a feast, but the only food was purple flowers. The others sat down and began to eat, and Poia attempted to do likewise, but the taste of the flowers was bitter in her mouth. Again the two women said, 
You belong to us. You must not be called Poia, but Tetoni Poia Tari Matatinaya. And they coaxed her to stay with them. But she wept and said that she could not bear to be separated from her husband, whom she loved. As before, they were kind to her, and took her to her house, where she awoke as if from sleep, and said nothing. It was the same the next day, but this time, when they came to the third chamber of the Mori, Vahinatua and Vahinatua said, Now you must no longer think of returning. You are ours, and we wish you to stay here with us. Boea wept at their words, for she began to think of the man she loved. I must go, she said. If I had no husband, I would gladly remain with you here. At last, when her tears had fallen for a long time, the three dwellers in the Mori took her home. They bade her farewell reluctantly, saying that next day she must come to them for good. This time Boea awoke in great fear, and she told the story to her mother when they went to bathe together. Her mother went straight to the grandfather to tell him what she had seen, and ask him if her true name was Poia, as he had said years before. Then the old man said that he had done wrong, for the name was not only Poia, but Tetanoia Poia Tari Matarina, a name which belonged to Vahanetua and Tanetua, and Viva Tatatua, and these three came no more to get Poia. They were content, for they loved her and wanted her to have her their name. As she finished her story, Tehinatua lay down once more, resting her head on her grandmother's knee. My thoughts were wandering far away across a great ocean and a continent, to the quiet streets of New Bedford, set with old houses in which descendants of the whalers live out their ordered lives. In all probability the girl beside me, Polynesian to the core, and glorying in a long line of ancestors whose outlandish names fell musically from her lips, had cousins who lived on those quiet streets. For she was the granddaughter of a New Bedford wait-in captain, the husband of Arima, a Puritan who ate once too often of the fay and lingered on the islands to turn traitor and rear a family of half-caste children, and finally to die. The story is an old one, repeated over and over again in every group. The White Cross, the half-white's children at the parting of the ways, the turning aside from the stony path of the father's race to the pleasant ways of the mother. And so in the end the strain of white, further diluted with each succeeding generation, shows itself in nothing more than a name, seldom used and oftentimes forgotten. It is nature at work and she is not always cruel. Is it the same with names in your land? Aramina was asking. Are certain names kept in a family throughout the years? It is somewhat the same, I told her, though we do not prize names so highly. My father and grandfather and his father were all named Charles, which you called Terry. Among my people, she said, the possession of a name means much. As far back as our stories go, there has been a man named Maurice in each generation of my father's family. Some of these Maurice are strange men. There was Maurice Terrabona Eno, who fished with a bait of coconut for the spirits of men drowned in the sea, and another was Maurice Matatofa, who stole a famous shark, the adopted child of a man of Federapiti. 
That was a good shark. It lived in the lagoon, harming no one, and every day the man and his wife called it to them with certain secret words. But Marie coveted the shark, and he prepared an underwater cave in the coral before his house. Then, when the cave was ready, he hid in the bushes on the shore of the lagoon while the man was calling his shark, and in this way Marie learned the secret words of summons. When the man and his wife had gone, Moray called out the words. The shark appeared close in shore and followed him to the cave, where it stayed, well content. And that night he taught it new words. Next day the man and his wife called for the shark, and when it did not come, they suspected that Marie had enticed it away. After that they went to the house of Marie and accused him of the theft, but he said, Give the call, if you think I have stolen your shark. I have a shark, but it is not yours. They called, but the shark did not come, for he had taught it new words. Then Marie called, and the shark came at once, so he said, See, it must be my shark, for it obeys me and not you. As he turned away to return to Ferapitihiti, the other man said, I think it is my shark, but if it will obey you and no other, you may have it. Some days later a party of fishermen came to Maurice's cave where the shark lived. They baited a great hook and threw it into the water, and as it sank into the cave they chanted a magic chant. Then the shark seized the bait, and as they hauled him out, they laughed with joy and chanted, Imato mari paru maru, iami mai ainti The chant is something about a good hook and a good line, but the other words are dead. What they mean no man knows today. That night there was a feasting in the houses of the fishermen. But next morning, when Marie went down to the sea and called his shark, Nothing came, though he stayed by the lagoon, calling from morning till the sun had set. After that he learned that his shark had been killed and eaten, and from that day none of Maurice's undertakings prospered. Finally he pined away and died. Tihinanatu stirred and sat up, eyes shining in the moonlight. The subject of sharks has for these people a fascination we do not understand, a significance tinged with the supernatural. They did evil to kill that shark, she said, for all sharks are not bad. I remember the tale my mother told me of Veratora, the long-haired Pomotian woman, wife of Mori Omaai. Her god was a shark. It was many years ago when the vessels of the white men were few in these islands. Mori shipped on a schooner going to New Zealand, taking his wife with him, as was permitted in those days. That woman was not like us. She understood ships and had no fear of the sea. As for swimming, there were few like her. When she came here, the woman marveled at her hair. It reached to her ankles, and she wore it coiled about her head in two great braids, thick as a man's arm. The captain of that schooner was always drinking. Most of the time he lay stupefied in his bed. As they sailed to the south, the sea grew worse and worse, but the captain was too drunk to take notice. The men of the crew were in great fear. They had no confidence in the mate, and the seas were like mountain ridges all about them. The morning came, when Viertura said to Marie, Before nightfall this schooner will be at the bottom of the sea. Let us make ready. Rub yourself well with coconut oil, and I will braid my hair and fasten it tightly about my head. Toward midday they were standing together by the shrouds when Viertura said, Quick, leap into the rigging. 
That woman knew the ways of the sea. Next moment a great wave broke over the schooner. The decks gave way, and most of the people who were below died, the death of rats at once. But Viratora and her husband leaped into the sea before the vessel went down. A day and a night they were swimming. There were times when Mori would have lost courage if Viratora had not cheered him. Put your hands on my shoulders, she said, and rest. Remember that I am a woman of the low islands. We are as much at home in the sea as on land. All the while she was praying to the shark who was her god. The storm was abated soon after the schooner went down. Next day the sea was blue and very calm. Presently, when the sun was high, Viratora said to her husband, I think my god will soon come to us. Put your head beneath the water and tell me what you see. With a hand on her shoulder, he did as she had told him, gazing long into the depth below. Finally he raised his head, dripping, and when he had taken breath he spoke, I see nothing, he said, not but the Miti Harini, the blue salt water. She prayed a little to her god and told him to look again, and the third time he raised his head, with fear and wonder on his face. Something is rising in the sea beneath us, he said, as his breath came fast. A great shark, large as a ship, and bright red like the mountain plantain. My stomach is sick with fear. Now I am content, said the Pomodian woman, for that great red shark is my god. Have no fear. Either he will eat us and so end our misery, or he will carry us safely to shore. Next moment the shark rose beside them. Like the hull of a ship floating bottom-up, the fin on his back stood tall as a man. When Viratora and her husband swam to where he waited them, and with the last of their strength they climbed up on his rough side and seated themselves, one on each side of the fin, to which they clung. For three days and three nights they sat on the back of the shark while he swam steadily to the northeast. They might have died of thirst, but when there were squalls of rain, Viratora unbound her hair and sucked the water from one long braid, while Marie drank from the other. At last, in the first gray of dawn, they saw land. Mangonea, I think you call it. The shark took them close to the reef. They sprang into the sea, and the little waves carried them ashore without a scratch. As they lay resting on the reef, the shark swam to and fro, close in, as though awaiting some word from them. When she saw this, Viratora stood up and cried out in a loud voice, We are content. We owe our lives to thee. Now go and we shall stay here. At those words the shark god turned away and sank into the sea. To the day of her death Viratora never saw him again. After that she and her husband walked into the village, where the people of Maritia made them welcome, and after a few years they got passage on a schooner back to Maurice's own land. The soft voice of the girl died away. I heard only the murmur of the reef. Masses of cloud were gathering about the peaks above our heads, the moon was sailing a clear sky, radiant and serene. The world was all silver and gray and black. The quiet lagoon, the shadowy land, the palms like inky lace against the moonlight. Tao stiffed a little yawn and stretched out on the mat, with the abrupt and careless manner of a child. Her grandmother tossed away a burnt-down cigarette. "'It is late,' said the woman of Mapati, "'and we must rise at daybreak. Now let us sleep.' End of chapter 15
Chapter Sixteen of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Sixteen. Anchored off the reef, on the third day of the homeward voyage, the wind died away, and in the middle of the afternoon it felt dead calm. When we were less than a mile distant from the toll of Panaki. With the exception of a small group of Papeete traders, I don't suppose there are a dozen white men who have ever heard of the place, and those who have seen it, or set foot upon it, must be fewer still. It lies towards the eastern extremity of the low archipelago, and is one of the four small atolls, all within a radius of thirty miles of one another. On charts of that segment of the eastern Pacific these four islands are barely discernible, and Panaki the last of them, appears but a little larger than the dot of the eye in White Sunday, its English name. The current carried us slowly along the northwesterly side of the island. It was intensely hot. Teria, nephew of Maiti, the skipper, was sluicing the blistered deck, but the water streamed out of the scuppers, and in a moment the planking was as dry and as hot to the touch as before. He soon left off and took refuge in the whaleboat which he covered with a piece of canvas. I crawled in with him, but the suffocating shade was less endurable than the full glare of the sun. Tane, the other sailor, a man of fifty, was below. He had remained there most of the time since our departure from Ruterio, sleeping on a greasy mat, indifferent to the cockroaches. The place was alive with them by night, or the copra bugs, which were a nuisance at all hours. The stench from the little cabin, filled almost to the ceiling with unsacked cocoa, was terrible, and it was not much better on the deck. I took shelter beside Miti, who was sitting in the meager shade of the main sail. Presently pointing casually toward the shore, he said, "'You see him?' "'What he do there?' I saw the man plainly enough, now that he was pointed out to me, standing with his arms folded, leaning lightly against a tree. I was limited to a hasty glance through my binoculars, for he was looking toward us. But I saw that he was unmistakably white, although his skin seemed as dark as that of a native. He was barefoot, naked to the waist, and for another garment wore a pair of trousers chopped off at the knees. I, too, wondered about what a white man could be doing on an uninhabited island. Mati knew no more of the atoll than it was or had been uninhabited. It belonged, he said, to the natives of Nukatakri, which lay nine miles to the northwest. We could see this other atoll as we rode to the light swell, a splotch of blue haze and nails breadth wide, vanishing and reappearing against the clear line of the horizon. In two hours' time the current had carried us to the lee side of the island. It ran swiftly there, but in a more northerly direction, so that we were forced out of the mainstream of it and drifted gradually into quiet water near the shore. An anchor was carried to the reef, and we brought up to within thirty yards of it. With another anchor out forward, the schooner was safely berthed for the night. I went ashore with the two sailors for a fresh supply of drinking coconuts, but I gave no help in collecting them. A fire was going on the lagoon beach, and there I found the solitary Reston, frying some fish before a small hut built in the native fashion. He might have been of any age between thirty-five and forty-five, was powerfully built, with a body as finely proportioned as a Polynesian's. His voice was pleasant and his manner cordial, as he gave me welcome. 
but a pair of the coldest blue eyes I have ever seen made me doubt the sincerity of it. I felt the need of making apologies for the intrusion, adding lamely, I haven't seen a white man in three months, and our skipper speaks very little English. I was about to look you up, he said. I can't say that I'm lonely here. I managed to get along without much companionship. But to be frank, I'm hungry for tobacco. There's none left at Noratakaveke, and I've been sucking an empty pipe since last November. You haven't a fill in your pouch by chance. I would have given something for his relish of the first pipe full, or the fifth, or that matter. Finally, he said, I imagine you are in for several days of Pinaki. You have noticed the sky? Not a sign of wind. I can't offer you much in the way of food, but the fishing is good, and if you care to, you are welcome to stop ashore. I accepted the invitation gladly, but as I walked back to the schooner for a few belongings and some more tobacco, I questioned the propriety of my decision. My prospective host was an Englishman by his accent, although, like my friend Crichton at Tanso, he was evidently long away from home. He struck me as being a good deal of the Christian type, although he differed greatly from him outwardly. I remembered that Crichton, too, had been pleasant and friendly once the ice was broken between us, but the prospect of an early parting and the certitude of our never meeting again had been the basis for the friendship, in so far as he was concerned. This other Englishman was not living on an uninhabited atoll because of a liking for companionship. I was debating the matter of a return to shore when Tain crawled out of this cabin to make preparations for supper, and as he was a sufferer of elephantitis, the sight of his immense swollen limbs and his greasy, sweating body decided me. Papati was far distant, and I would have enough of Tain before we reached the end of this journey. Supper was ready by the time I reached the hut. It consisted of fish, deliciously broiled coconuts, and hard biscuit. Over it I gave my host an account of my stay at Ruterino, and the unsuccessful experiment in solitude. Yes, he said, they are rather too sociable, these natives. The people of Nakatakavaki used to bother me a good deal when I first came here. I thought nine miles of open sea would keep them away, but they often came over in sailing canoes a dozen or two at a time when the wind favored and they would stay until it shifted back into the southeast. I didn't encourage them. In fact, I made it quite plain that I preferred to be alone. The island is theirs, of course, and I can't prevent them from coming during the copa-making season. But they no longer come at other times. Nine months out of the year, I have the place to myself. But they are damnably inquisitive. I don't like Kanakas in the aggregate, although I have one or two good friends among them. The dying fire lit us to bed about midnight. I lay awake for a long time after my host was sleeping. We had talked for three hours, chiefly about the islands. In fact, all that he told me of himself was that he was fond of fishing. There was not a hint of breeze the next day, nor the next, nor the day after that. The sea was almost as calm as the lagoon, and the poe Ravarera lay motionless at anchor, as though frozen in a sheet of clear ice. Mitty and the two sailors remained on board most of the time, sleeping during the heat of the day under a piece of canvas rigged over the main beam, and at night fishing over the side in dreamy contentment. If they came ashore at all, it was only for a few moments, and they never crossed to the lagoon beach. 
During these three days I remained the Englishman's guest, and although I was out of patience with myself for my curiosity, it grew in spite of me. What under the sun was the man doing here? Evidently he had not come to an atoll, as my friend Crichton had, to do his writing and thinking undisturbed. Christian had books, a practical interest in planting, and a cultural interest in Polynesian dialects. He would muse for hours over a word in one dialect which might or might not bear a remote resemblance to some other word in usage a thousand miles away. The study fascinated him. As he once told me, it gave his imagination room to work in. I have no doubt that he made up for himself stories of the early Polynesian migrations vastly better than any romances he might have read. This other Englishman had no books, not so much as a scrap of writing paper. At least I saw none in his house, which was as bare as it was clean. There was a sleeping mat in one corner, a chest and some fishing gear against the wall, picks and shovels in a corner, a few old clothes hanging from nails driven into the supports, and absolutely nothing else. How did he put in his time? Fishing was a healthy interest, but it was not enough to keep a man sane for a period of seven years. He let that bit of information slip in one conversation I had with him. He was not a taciturn chap. After our first evening, he talked quite freely about his earlier adventures. He had spent three years in northern Australia prospecting for gold, and he gave me an intensely interesting account of the aborigines there, of their marvelous skill at following a trail no matter over what sort of country. I had heard that these people were biologically different from the rest of humankind and that their blood would not cross with white blood. This was not the case, he said. He had known white men animal enough to take the Australian blacks for wives, and had seen the children which they had had by them. From Australia he had gone to New Guinea, still prospecting for gold, although at times he sought relief from the disappointment of it by making expeditions with the natives in search of bird-of-paradise feathers but gold was the word that rang through all his talk. Several times it was on the tip of my tongue to say, but there's no gold at Pinaki. I was able to resist the temptation, remembering his remark about the damnable inquisitiveness of people of Natatanaki. Then, on the morning of my third day on the island, an incident occurred which made the situation clear. End of chapter 16《Chapter Seventeen of Fairylands of the South Seas》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Seventeen. The Englishman's Story. I rose at dawn, but my host was out before me. He had left two fish cleaned and ready for cooking on a plate outside the door. Having breakfasted. I started on a walk around the atoll, which I estimated I could accomplish in about an hour. I expected to meet the Englishman somewhere on the way, and I did find him on the opposite side of the lagoon. The shore was steep, too, there. He had a steel-tipped rod in his hand and was diving off a ledge of rock, remaining below for as long as a full minute. He waved when he saw me, but kept on with his work. In about a quarter of an hour he came over to where I was standing. "'Tiresome work,' he said. "'I need a blow.' And you see, I've been doing a bit of digging here. I had walked along the lagoon beach and had not noticed before the series of trenches higher up the land. I should think he had been digging. I inspected the ditches under his guidance. There were three, at least a quarter of a mile in length each, 
and from three to four feet deep. These ran in parallel lines and were about four paces apart. Fifteen to twenty shorter trenches cut through them at right angles. The sun was well above the horizon. We lit our pipes and sat down in the shade. After a few moments of silence, he said, I suppose you know what I'm doing here. If you have been in Papati, you must have heard. There's no secret about it, at least not any longer. I said that I had left Papati shortly after my arrival. I had spent several idle afternoons on the veranda of the Bougainville Club, but in the talk which went around there I don't remember having heard of Pinaki. So much the better, he said. Yes, seven years is a long time, and I am not keen about feeding gossip. But when I first came down here, there was a clacking of tongues from one end of the group to the other. I believe I have since earned the reputation of being rather queer. I thought you must know. The fact is, I am looking for treasure. Would you care to hear of the story? Very much, I said, if it won't bore you to tell it. On the contrary, it will be something of a relief. Seven years of digging with nothing to show for it must strike an outsider as a mad business. Sometimes I'm half persuaded that I am a complete fool to go on with the search. But you can't possibly know the fascination of it. It seems like only yesterday that I came here. As you see for yourself, it's not much of an island. And to know that there is treasure of more than three million pounds buried somewhere in this tiny circle of scrub and palm. But do you know it, I ask? I'm as sure of it as that I am smoking your tobacco. That is, I am sure it was buried here. Whether it has been removed since, I can't say, of course. The natives of Natarakavaki remember a white man whom they called Luta, who came here over twenty years ago and remained for something over a month. One of the four men who stole the gold and brought it to Paniki was a man named Luke Barrett, and it may have been he who came back, although he was supposed to have been killed in Australia forty years ago. It is the uncertainty that makes it such killing work at times. But when I think of giving it up, you would have to live with the thought of treasure for seven years, and to dream at night of finding it, before you could understand. He rose suddenly. If you don't mind a short walk, I will show you something rather interesting. We went along the lagoon beach for several hundred yards, then crossed toward the ocean side. Near the center of the island we came upon an immense block of coral, broken from the reef and carried there by some great storm of the past. Cut deeply into the face of the rock, I saw a curious design. I asked what it meant. Man, if I knew that. I believe it's the key and I can't master it. But we may as well sit down and be comfortable. If you would really care to hear the story from the beginning, it will take the better part of an hour. I'll not give you all the details, but when I've finished, you will be in a position to judge for yourself whether or not I was mad in coming here. Have you ever read Walker's book, Undiscovered Treasure? doesn't matter except that you have missed a very entertaining volume. It is a pity that old work is out of print. Nothing in it but bare facts about all sorts of treasures supposed to have been buried here and there about the world. You might think it would be dry, but I've found it better company than any romance I've ever read. However, that has nothing to do with this story, except in an indirect way. I first read the book as a boy, and it started me on my travels. To me, the facts about the Panaki treasure are as interesting as any of Walker's. He, of course, knew nothing about it, for it had not been stolen when his book was published. Four men had a hand in the business, a Spaniard named Alvarez, an Irishman named Kilrin, and two others of uncertain nationality, Luke Barrett, 
whom I spoke of a moment ago, and Archer Brown. They were a thieving, murdering lot, by all accounts, adventurers of the worst sort, and, in hope of plunder, I suppose, had joined the Peruvian army during the war with Chile in 1859-60. to Their hopes were realized beyond their expectations. They got wind of some gold buried under the floor of a church, and the strange thing was that the gold was there, and they found it. It was in thirty-kilo ingots, contained in seven chests, the whole lot worth in a neighborhood of three and a half million pounds. How they managed to get away with it, I don't know, but I have investigated the business pretty thoroughly, and I have every reason to believe that they did. They buried it again in the vicinity of Pesco, and then set out in search of a vessel. Alvarez was the only one of the four that had any education. They had all followed the sea at one time or another, but he alone knew how to navigate. The others could hardly write their own names. At Panama they signed on as members of the crew of a small schooner, and as soon as they had put to sea, knocked the captain and the other two sailors in the head, and chucked them overboard. They returned to Pasco, loaded the gold, and started for the Pomodians. This was the autumn of 1859. In the December following they landed at Pinaki, where they buried the treasure. The island was uninhabited then, as now, and they crossed to Nukatakavaki to learn the name of it. The natives were shy, but they persuaded one man to approach, and when they had the information they wanted, shot him and rowed out to their boat. If you should go to Nukatakavaki, you will find two old men there who still remember the incident. Then they went to Australia, scuttled the vessel not far from Cookstown, and went ashore with the story of shipwreck. They had some of the gold with them, not much in proportion to the amount of the treasure, but enough to keep four ordinary men in comfort for the rest of their lives. It soon went, and the four were next heard of at the Palmar Goldfields. Alvarez and Barrett were both supposed to have been killed there in a fight with some blacks. Brown and Kilrain had not mended their ways to any extent, and both were finally jerked up for manslaughter and sentenced to twenty years' penal servitude. Brown died in prison, but Kilrain served out his term and finally died in Sydney Hospital in 1912. Most of these facts, if they are facts, I had from Kilrain himself the night before he died. I met him in a curious way, or, better, the meeting came as the result of a curious combination of circumstances. You have maybe have noticed the scar on my side? I had noticed a broad gash puckered at the edges, where the flesh had healed, tapering to a point in the middle of his back. It was not much of a wound, he went on, but it gave me a deal of trouble at the time. I got it in New Guinea in 1911 when I was prospecting for gold in the back country. I was a long way from a settlement, and one day a nigger took it into his head to stick me with a spear. I suppose he wanted my gun and ammunition, for I had little else excepting my placer outfit. I let him have one bullet from a colt just before he was about to dive into the bush, and for all I know he may be lying there to this day. I have that little frizzy-headed native to thank for my knowledge of the Panaki treasure. Sometimes I'm sorry that I killed him, but at other times I feel that shooting was altogether too easy a death for the man really responsible for bringing me here. I was in a bad way from the wound. Infection set in, and I had to nurse myself somehow to get down to a place where I could have medical attention. I managed it, but the ten days' journey was a nightmare. I was nothing but skin and bone when I left the hospital, and New Guinea not being a likely place for a convalescent, the doctor recommended me go to Australia. I had a small bag of dust, the result of a year and a half of heartbreaking work in the mountains, 
Most of it went for the hospital bill, and when I reached Sydney, I had very little left. I was compelled to put up at the cheapest kind of a boarding-house, although the woman who kept it was quite a decent sort. Her house was in a poor quarter of the town, and her patrons mostly longshoremen and teamsters. It was a wretched life for her, but she had two children to support and was making the best of a bad job. I admired her pluck and did what I could in a small way to help her out. One evening I was waiting for supper in the kitchen when someone rapped. Before I could go to the door it opened, and an old man came stumbling in, asking for something to eat. I thought he was drunk and was about to hustle him back the way he came when I noticed that he was wet. Though it was a cold, rainy night, and really suffering from exposure and lack of food, I made him remove his coat. He had nothing on under it, but not without a great deal of trouble, and he insisted on drying it across his knees. He was a little weazened ape of an Irishman, about five foot three or four in height, with deep-set blue eyes, bushy eyebrows, a heavy discolored mustache, and a thick shock of white hair. Altogether, the most frightful-looking little dwarf that ever escaped out of a picture book. He was tattooed all over the arms and chest, hands across the sea, the Union Jack, a naked woman, several other designs common in waterfront tattooing parlors. His body was as shriveled as a withered apple, but his little bloodshot eyes blazed like bits of live coal. Except for the fire in them, he might have been a hundred years old, and as a matter of fact, he wasn't a great way from it. Eighty-seven, he told me, and that is about all he did tell me. He gorged some food and was all for getting away at once. But it had set in to rain very hard, and I persuaded him to wait until the worst of it was over. He was very suspicious at first. I believe he expected me to call a policeman. Later he thought a little, and became even talkative in a surly way when I told him, with the landlady's consent, that he might stay the night if he had no place else to go. Wouldn't hear of it, though. He said he had a job as night watchman at Rushcutters Bay. That might or might not have been true, at any rate. I went with him to the car line. The boarding house was a good mile from Rushcutters Bay, and gave him a couple of shillings as a loan, I said. He could return it sometime. Just before I left him, he asked me for my name and address, mumbling something about doing me a bit of good one of these days. He was insistent, so I gave it to him, but not at all willingly. He had frightened Mrs. Sharp, the landlady, just by the way he looked at her, and I didn't want him coming back. He didn't come back. That was in May, 1912, and I heard nothing more of him until September. I was still at the boarding-house, getting slowly better, but not yet good for anything. I kept out of doors as much as possible, took long walks in the country, and along the waterfront, looking at ships. When I came in one evening, Mrs. Sharp told me that an attendant from the Sydney Hospital had called twice during the day. An old man named Killerin, a patient at the hospital, wanted to see me. The name meant nothing to me, and I couldn't imagine who the man could be. The attendant called again later in the evening. Killerin was about to die, he said, and wouldn't give them any peace until I was brought to see him. It was getting on toward midnight when we reached the hospital. The old man was in one of the public wards. I recognized him at once, although he had shriveled away to nothing at all. It was impossible to forget his eyes once you had seen them. He was dying, no doubt of it, but I could see that he wasn't going to die until he was ready. Sit down, close here, he said. I'm glad you came. You did me a good turn once, and I haven't forgot it. Few good turns I've had in my life. Not so many that what I can remember the lot. 
The night nurse had approached quietly and was, was standing on the other side of the bed. All at once he saw her. Hey, you, he said. Grease off out of this. Stand over there on the other side of the room where I can watch you. When she had gone, he rose from his pillow and looked cautiously around the room. The beds on either side of him were empty. There was a patient in the one across the aisle, but he was sleeping. Kilrin watched him for a moment to make sure of this. Then he motioned me with his finger to come still closer. Hey, listen, he said. I've cut more throats in my time than you might think. Sounds a bit stagey, doesn't it? But these were his exact words. Nothing remarkable about them, of course. Throat-cutting is still a very thriving business. I waited for him to go on. He again looked up and down the room, and then asked me to hand him the coat which was lying across the foot of the bed. It was the same coat he had been wearing in May when he came to the boarding-house. "'And they brought me in here,' he said. "'They took my clothes, and I've had some trouble getting this back. The attendant had told me as much.' The old man had raised a very devil of a row until it was found. He asked me to rip open the lining of the right sleeve and to give him the paper I would find there. It was a soiled, greasy sheet of full scrap, pasted on a piece of cloth. Once, he went on, you gave me two shillings for car fare to Rush Cutter's Bay. Probably wasn't any hardship for you, but never mind about that. You said I could pay you back if I had a mind to. Well, I'm going to pay it back with a bit of interest. I'm going to give you this paper, and it's as good as three million pound notes of the Bank of England. I thought, of course, that he was completely off his chump, and the fear that I would think so was uppermost in his mind. He kept repeating that he was old and worn out, but that his mind was clear. Don't you think I'm balmy? he said. I know what I'm talking about as well as I know I'm going to die before morning. He gave me a circumstantial account of the whole affair. I've outlined it briefly. There were many other interesting facts, but it is not worthwhile to speak of them here. As he talked, the conviction grew upon me that he was perfectly sane and was telling the truth. He went over the chart with me. It had been made by Alvarez, the scholar of the party, he said. There had been a good deal of quarreling and fighting later for the possession of it. Before I left him, he made me promise that I would go to Panaki. He wouldn't rest easy in his grave, he said, unless he knew that I was looking for the treasure. It's there, and it will always be there, if you're bloody fool enough to think I'm queer. It ain't likely I'd lie to you on my deathbed. Rest easy in his grave. There was an odd glimpse into his mind. He wasn't worrying about the crimes, and there was enough of them according to his own confession. It was the thought of the gold lying forever forgotten which worried him. He could rest quietly if he knew before he died that someone else was fighting and throat-cutting over it. I asked him why he hadn't gone backboard himself. He told me that of the fifty-three years since it had been buried, he had spent forty in prison, and the rest of the time he was trying to earn or steal the money to buy a schooner. I told him that I would come back to see him the following day. Ah, you needn't bother, he said. I'm finished. And it was true. He died three hours later. I tried to forget the incident, but it was one of those things which refused to be forgotten. It was always in the back of my head. 
I decided to check up Killen's story where I could, made inquiries in Peru, and found that the gold had actually been stolen. The dates and circumstances coincided with his account. A friend in the customs at Corktown confirmed for me the story of four shipwrecked sailors who landed in February, 1860, from a ship called the Balsan Bird. I had a small piece of property on the outskirts of Cookstown, which I had bought years ago. With the money realized from the sale of it, I took passage for Tahiti on my way to Panaki. That voyage was the longest one I have ever made. By that time, the thought of those seven chests of gold, all in thirty kilo ingots, was with me twenty-four hours out of the twenty-four. Yes, even at night. I slept very little, and when I did, it was to dream of hunting for the treasure, of finding it. I became suspicious of a villainous-looking old man who was traveling third class. I thought he might be Brown or Luke Barrett. Perhaps they were not dead, after all. At Papeete, I told no one of my purpose there, with the exception of one government official. If the treasure should be found, the French government would have a claim to a certain percentage of uncoined gold, and I meant to be above board in my dealings with it. This official was sworn to secrecy, but the business leaked out eventually and created a great deal of excitement. I was immensely annoyed, of course, for I had guarded the secret as well as old Killerin ever had. However, I had in my pocket all the necessary papers, drawn up accurately, witnessed, signed, and sealed. I went on with my preparations, and finally in February, 1913, I was put ashore from a small cutter, not four hundred yards from where we are sitting. I started the search before the cutter was two miles on the return voyage. For two months I slept in the open, had no time to build a house, and ate tinned food which I had brought with me. Gilleran's chart was of but little use. It made reference to trees which had long since rotted away, or had been cut down by the natives of Narotakakavagi. The marks which I found corresponded precisely with those on the chart, but several of the most important ones were missing. The treasure hunter rose. Well, he said, there's the end of the story. You know the rest of it. But I don't know the rest at all, I said. You have left out the most interesting part. Tell me something of your life here. You've seen three days of it. It has gone on for seven years in the same way. You were diving just now in the lagoon. Do you think the gold may have been buried there, or that the land has fallen away? My dear fellow, I'll not weary you with an account of what I think. It's rather warm here. Shall we go back to the house? I was hoping for a week of calm, and when we went to bed that evening, there was reason to believe we might have it. A few hours later, however, I was awakened by the Englishman. It's going to be a bit of a blow presently, he said. Your skipper has just sent for you. He wants to get away at once. The stars had been blotted out, the wind was sloughing off the palms, and waves slapping briskly on the lagoon beach. Our farewell was a brief one. When shall you come to Tahiti? I asked. Not until I've found what I'm looking for. Well, I said, I hope that will be soon. But if he holds fast to his resolve, my belief is that it will be never. End of chapter 17「Chapter eighteen of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Conclusion Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter eighteen Aboard the Patai Rovera. 
I was awaiting Hall's arrival in Tahiti, confident that sooner or later he would keep a vague rendezvous set months before. I knew that by this time he must have penetrated far into the sea of atolls, traveling in the leisurely manner of the latitudes transferring from one schooner to the next and stopping over for weeks at a time, perhaps in the tranquil and lonely communities he had grown to love. Once or twice, when a dingy Pamutu schooner, deep laden with copra and crowded with pearl-divers, eager for a whirl at Vietti in the island capital, crept into the pass, I had word of him. But there was no hint of return. It was a month of calms, long days when the lagoon, unruffled by the faintest cat's paw, shimmered in blinding sunlight, while the sea outside seemed to slumber, stirring gently and drowsily along the reef. Once at midday a three-masted schooner, with all sails furled and diesel engines going, came in to waken the town with the hoarse clamor of her exhaust. An hour later I met her skipper on the street. "'Your friend Hall is homeward bound,' he told me. I spoke the Poti Rivera, a bit of thirty-ton schooner off Nakatakawaki, and he was aboard of her. She ought to be in some time this week. The days passed in the rapid and dreamy fashion peculiar to the South Seas. From time to time I thought of Hall and his diminutive schooner, drifting about becalmed among the coral islands, or perhaps only a score of miles off Tahiti, helpless to reach the sighted land. The Poti Rivera was a full week overdue when the calm weather came to an end. The heat was intense that afternoon, and toward sunset towering masses of cloud began to pile up along the horizon to the north. The sky grew black. There was a tense hush in the air, vibrant with the far-off rumble of thunder. When I strolled out along the waterfront, the people were gathering in anxious groups before their houses. I heard snatches of talk. Have you noticed a glass? Things have an ugly look. Hope it doesn't mean another cyclone. The town will catch it if the sea begins to rise. I had heard of the hurricane of 1906, when the sea rose and reached clean into the harbor, driving the population of Papati to the hills. On Motuuta, an island in the bay, a white man was living with his Pamamotian wife when the angry seas began to race in over the reef without a pause, sweeping the islet from end to end. The watchers ashore gave the pair up for lost, but the woman was a low islander, and just before dawn, when the coconut palm in which she had taken refuge was swept away, she swam six hundred yards to shore and landed through a surf a sea otter would have hesitated to attempt. Next day they found the drowned and battered body of her husband, drifting with dead pigs and horses, and a litter of wreckage from the lower portions of the town. Possibly Tahiti was in for another hurricane. When I glanced at my barometer after dinner it was falling with ominous rapidity, and at bedtime the glass stood lower than I had seen it in the South Seas. In the small hours of the morning a servant came to waken me. There was a new sound in the air, the uproar of surf breaking on the inner shore of the lagoon. The sea is rising, said Terra. The waves are breaking under the Paru trees, and if you do not come quickly to help me, our canoe will be washed away. The stars were hidden by black clouds, and though scarcely a breath of air stirred, the level of the lagoon was four feet above its normal limit, and the sheltered water, usually so calm, was agitated by a heavy swell. Then the rain came, drumming a thunderous monotone on my tin roof. 
and after the rain, the wind. At dawn, though a seventy-mile gale was blowing out of the northeast, it was obvious that all danger of a hurricane was past. At midday the glass began to rise, and before dark the wind was falling away perceptibly. More than once during the night I had thought of Hall, out somewhere on the wild and lonely sea to the east. The Potai Rivera, reputed to be an able little boat, with proper offing she would probably come through worse than this. But she had no engine, and if she had been caught in the Pomoto, the dangerous archipelago, where unknown currents and a maze of reefs make navigation ticklish in the best of weather, there was cause for anxiety. The storm blew itself out in two days' time, and on the evening of the third day I was standing on the waterfront with a group of traders and schooner captains. They were speaking of the Potai Rivera. By this time the object of mild misgivings, when one of the skippers gave a sudden shout, "'Here she is now!' he announced, and looking up I saw a deeply laden little schooner with patched grayish sails rounding the point of Fasheret. Presently she turned into the wind, dropped anchor, and sent a boat ashore. A few moments later I was welcoming Hall, very thin, raggedly dressed, and brown as a Pomotian. His eyes were smiling, but they had in them a look unmistakable when once seen, the expression of a hunger greater than most of us have known. Hello, he said. Come along to the hotel. It must be dinner-time. By Jove, I feel as though I could eat a raw shark. When he had eaten two dinners complete, from soup to black coffee, and beginning with soup again, he lit a cigarette and told me the story of his return from the Low Islands. It was all right, he began, until we left Hayo. The palm-tops were still in sight on the horizon when the breeze died away, and we drifted for seven whole days in a broiling, glassy calm. It was a curious experience, but one I would not care to repeat. You've seen the schooner. She's not much bigger than a sea-going canoe. There were four of us aboard. Mitai, the skipper, a Pomotonian, and a seaman by instinct, though he knows nothing of latitude or longitude. Two sailors, one of whom has a horrible case of elephantitis, and myself. We had a tremendous load of copra for so small a boat. The hold was crammed with it, and the cabin stuffed to the ceiling. Opposite the companionway, they had left out a few bags at the top, giving a space two feet high and just wide enough for two men to sleep side by side in case of rain or bad weather. Our stove was merely a box of sand in which a fire could be lighted, set in a little box of a galley tacked to the forward deck. If we had anything to cook, the galley might have been useful, but... Miti had given away nearly all the ship's provisions to his relatives in Hale. They gave him a feast while some copra was being loaded, and when the job was finished he gave a feast in return. The two sailors looked sour while they watched the people opening their biscuit and salmon and bully beef, but after all the prevailing winds are fair, and normally the passage to Tahiti wouldn't take more than ten days. Miti overdid the giving away business, however. When we took stock of our kauki on the first day of the calm, I found he had saved only half a tin of biscuit and a few cans of salmon. In addition to this, we had a parting gift of a sack of drinking nuts and a couple of dozen ripe nuts someone was sending to Tahiti for seed. I had grown fed up on the sort of water these schooners carry, stale and full of wiggling young mosquitoes, 
and by great good fortune I had a three-gallon demijohn sent by Tino of the windship, which I filled with fresh rainwater in hell. My demijohn lasted precisely a day and a half. All hands drank out of it, but I did not complain of their lavishness. There was supposed to be a barrel of water somewhere below. Those were thirsty days. We rigged up an awning with a part of an old mainsail. I spent most of my time lying in the hot shade, reading the one book I had with me. Forestat's Chronicles of England, France, and Spain. The days seemed interminable. The starlight paled, the sun rose to glare down hour after hour on the face of a motionless and empty sea, and sent at last on a horizon void of clouds. Sometimes I dozed, sometimes I watched the reflections of the bowsprit. It was painted gray with a bright red tip, and seen in the faintly heaving water it looked like a long gray snake spitting fire as it writhed in gracious undulations. The sufferer from elephantitis turned out to be an extraordinary man. It was not worth while to keep watches during the calm, and, as there was no work of any importance, he retired to the stifling cubbyhole among the copra sacks and slept. Slept from dawn to darkness and from dark to dawn again. Now and then, at long intervals, he appeared on deck. Once I went aft to look at him. Lying naked except for a peru, mouth open and swollen limbs sprawled on the uneven surface of the copra. Miti and Terra showed a different side of native character. The schooner belonged to the captain, and keeping her trim gave him the same delight a man feels in buying pretty clothes for his mistress. The young sailor was Miti's nephew and the pair of them worked tirelessly in the sun, scraping a rail and topsides in preparation for a fresh coat of paint. It was strange, when I was deep in forested sieges and battles and stories of court life, to glance up from my book and see the vacant rim of the horizon, the silhouette of the foremast against a hot blue sky, and the two Kanakas endlessly at work, scrape, 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 an exchange of low-toned remarks, a chuckle as they heard the gentle snores of the sleeping man below. Nearly every day our hopes were raised by deceitful cat-paws, heralded by far-off streaks of blue. Some died before they reached us, others, after a preliminary rustle and flutter, filled our sails and set the schooner to moving gently on her course, only to die away and leave the sea glassy as before. On the second day the sharks began to gather in their uncanny fashion, as they always do about a vessel becalmed or in distress. I spent hours watching them, ugly blots in the clear blue water, waiting with a grim and hopeful patience for some happening which would provide them with a meal. They circled about the schooner in deliberate zigzags, or lay motionless in the shadow of her side, attended always by their odd little striped pilotfish. I learned to recognize one ponderous old gray shark. He had a brace of pilotfish, one swimming on each side of his head, and he wasn't afraid of us in the least. Sometimes he lay for an hour within a yard of the vessel's side. I could see the texture of his rough skin and the almost imperceptible motions of fins and tail. I can understand now the hatred sharks inspire in men who follow the sea. It wasn't long before I decided to try to kill the big, insolent brute. We hadn't as much as a hook and line on board, but finally, with a file and the point of a rusty boat-hook, I improvised a makeshift sort of spear, 
Armed with this, I waited by the rail until my victim came in range, and then lunged down with all my strength. The spear glanced off his tough hide. He swam away in a leisurely manner, turned, and a moment later was again beneath me. This time I struck him fair on the back, but it was like trying to kill an elephant with a penknife. I think the point of my boat hook punctured him, but he only circled off again and returned to give me another chance. In the end, I gave up and left him in possession of the field. The nights when the air had cooled and the stars were blazing overhead were so beautiful that one hated to fall asleep. Reflection made sky and sea alike, dark backgrounds, for the mirrored lights of the constellations. Lying on deck while the others slept, I used to regret that I had not learned something of astronomy. The average native sailor knows more about the stars than I. Orion, I know. The Pleiades, which the natives, with a rather pretty fancy, call Mataraki, the little eyes, and the scorpion, believed in heathen times to be the great fish-hook of Maui, flung into the sky by the god when he had finished pulling up islands from the bottom of the Pacific. Each night I watched the rising of the Southern Cross, and low down in the south I saw the Magellanic clouds, streamers of stardust, like vapor, impalpable and remote. In spite of my companion sleeping quietly on the deck, those nights gave me a sense of overwhelming loneliness, the languid air, the solitary ship, immobile on the face of a lifeless sea, the immense expanse of the universe, ablaze with the light of distant suns. When our water gave out, I began to prefer the nights to the days. My demijohn, as I told you, lasted only a day and a half. After that, we used the drinking nuts, and not until the last of them was gone did anyone think of investigating the water cask. There was consternation when we discovered that it contained only three or four inches of rusty water. Either it leaked or the skipper was remarkably careless. Hoping all the time for a breeze or squall of rain, we began on the half-sack of ripe nuts, thin, sharp stuff for drinking. But the lot of them went in a day. Then we went on rations, dealt out from the barrel with a soup-spoon. Finally the barrel was dry, and we went two days with nothing of any kind to drink. It was no joke. If you've ever had a real thirst, you'll know what I mean. The natives stood it wonderfully well. Miti did not once complain, though he remarked to me that when he got ashore he was planning to drink too much coconut. The victim of Fifi continued his slumberous routine. I wondered if he were dreaming of rustling palms and shaded, gurgling rivulets. It was my first experience of thirst. Odd, what an utter animal one becomes at such a time. Waking and sleeping, my head was filled with dreams of water brooks, rivers, lakes, of cool, fresh water, in which to bury one's face and drink. I dreamed of lochs and highland burns in Scotland, of the gorge of Fontenay, on Tahiti, where only a few months before I had stood in the mist, listening to the roar of the cataract. Well, it wasn't much fun. Another day or two might have been unendable. And one comfort, at any rate, if you're thirsty enough, you don't worry about eating. By the time we had finished the salmon and biscuit, we had ceased to bother about food. On the last night of the calm, none of us slept, unless it was the sailor in his den among the copra sacks. At dawn, Miti touched my shoulder and pointed to the south, where the paling stars were obscured by banks of cloud. 
An hour later the rainwater was streaming out of these scuppers and spouting off one end of our awning into the barrel, hastily recouped in case of leaks. When the squall passed and the sun shone down on a dark blue leaping sea, we were running before a fine breeze from the southeast. Now that our thirst was satisfied and we had plenty of water in reserve, we discovered suddenly that we were starving. Meaty prowled about below and came on deck with a package of rice, stowed away during some previous voyage. It was a valuable find, for we had nothing else to eat. There was corpor, of course, which the native will eat in a pinch, but the rancid smell of the stuff was too much for me. The wind held, and finally a day came when the skipper announced that we ought to raise Tahiti soon. About midday his nephew, who was perched in the shrouds, sang out that he had sighted land. I had a look and saw on the horizon a flat blur, like the palm-tops of a distant atoll. As we drew near the land, rose higher and higher out of the sea. It was Makatea, and we were more than a hundred miles north of our course. No meal I have ever eaten tasted so good as the dinner Miti's relatives gave us that night. We got away next morning with a liberal stock of provisions and an additional passenger for Tahiti a philosophic pig who traveled lashed under one of the seats of the ship's boat. For three hours we ran before a fresh northwesterly breeze, but about nine o'clock the wind dropped, and soon the sails were hanging limp in a dead calm. I began to suspect that the man with the swollen legs was a Jonah of the first order. This time, however, the calm was soon over. Heavy greenish-black clouds were drifting down on us from the north. The sunrise gave place to an evil violet gloom. Miti and his two men sprang into sudden activity. They battered down the forward hatch, put extra lashings on the boat, double-reefed the foresail, and got in everything else. Then, in a breathless calm, a downpour of rain began to lash the sea with a strange murmuring sound. I thought of an ominous old verse. If the wind before the rain, sheet your topsails home again. If the rain before the wind, then your topsails, Halyard's mind. It was a disagreeable moment. Even the pig felt it. For when the sailors moved him to a place in the bow of the dory, he refrained from the usual shrill protest. One detail sticks in my memory. When the skipper had taken his place at the wheel, he gave a sudden order. The man with the swollen legs shuffled hastily to where the boat was lashed down and pulled out the plug from its bottom. Then came the wind. It swept down on us from the north-northeast, from the quarter in which hurricanes begin, and the first furious gust was a mild sample of what was to come. When Matee got her laid to, heading at a slight angle into the seas, I realized the splendid qualities of the little Pote Rivera. No small vessel would have kept her decks dry in the sea that made up within an hour. The captain never left the wheel, and I doubt if there's a finer helmsman in the South Seas. But before noon, the galley, with our entire supply of food, was swept clean overboard, and time after time the lashed-down boat was filled. The pig had worked himself free except for one hind leg, tied to a bottom board with a rough strip of hibiscus bark, and as the water drained out slowly through the unplugged hole astern, the agitated surface would be broken by his snout, emitting sputtering screams. He lived through it, by the way. All of us, I believe, thought that we were in for a hurricane. Every hour the violence of the wind increased. It was a gale from the north-northeast, 
the wind called by the ancient Polynesians the terrible Maoke. It seemed to rush at us in paroxysms of fury, tearing off the entire crest of waves and hurling solid water about us as though it were spray. The forward hatch leaked badly. When I think of that storm, my memory is filled with a nightmare of endless pumping. A day and a night passed, and dawn found us riding a mountainous sea, but the wind was abating and our decks were dry. The victim of elephantitis had been taking spells with me at the pump. He is a man, that fellow, in spite of his loathsome infirmity. The pump began to suck up bubbles and froth. Mitty's eyes are sharp. Enough pumping, he shouted. Go and sleep, you two. We obeyed the order with alacrity. Sleeping on deck was out of the question. Without an instant of hesitation, I crawled in among the copra sacks, besides my repulsive companion. When I awoke, it was evening, and we were running, with a heavy following wind. Mitty was still at the helm, red-eyed from want of sleep, but whirling the spokes dexterously as each big sea passed beneath us and gazing ahead for the first glimpse of Tahiti. The clouds broke just before dark, and we had a glimpse of the high ridges of Terapu, dead ahead. We got sail on her at that, and stood off to the northwest, past the bay of Tavero, and the sunken reefs of Hitia. Toward morning we raised Point Venus Light, but the wind failed in the lee of the island, and it took us all day to reach Papati Harbor. Hall finished his story in the dark. The last of the diners had gone long since, and, save for ourselves, the broad veranda was empty. "'What are your plans?' I asked. "'Our year in the South Seas is up. Where are you going now?' "'I have no plans,' he said, except that I doubt if I shall ever go north again. I may be wrong, but I believe I've had enough of civilization to last me the rest of my life. "'We are happy here. Why should we leave the islands?' I fancy the South Seas have claimed the pair of us. The End End of chapter 18 Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado, MikeVendetti.com End of Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.